0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
1: Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Today's topic is labor unions, and this is going to be part one of part two, so make sure that you listen to this before you listen to part two. We're going to hear about some racism and some racial massacres, but we're also going to hear about some racial solidarity that caused real change. So we dive into what are labor unions, what are strikes, what the collective action looks like within the labor force, talk about the violent history, and walk through what it looked like pre-emancipation in Jim Crow. We talk about one of the first large-scale attempts at labor unionization, talk about some events in St. Louis, the CIO, and then we walk all the way up to civil rights, which is what we're going to hit on in part two. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, we're going to talk about labor unions. Karen, where do we even begin with that? I think there's probably somewhat of a history of people know what a union is, and but let's start this off. What do, what do we need to know? Yeah. So we're going to talk about segregation
2: and solidarity in industry, in labor. Um, so we're going to hear about all kinds of stuff, racial massacres, about racial solidarity that came through labor unions and came through collective action. But before we can understand all these stories, we need to understand what unions even are. So for Brad, I'm going to put this to you.
1: What do you know about what unions are? I think that there are groups of people that have come together and have set expectations for what they do and what the companies they work for provide. Mm-hmm. And
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Is that good? <laughs>
1: So this was yeah you, you didn't tell me this before so it's just, <laughs> you, pop quiz.
2: Yeah. So according to Britannica, the organized labor is the association and activities of workers within industry for the purpose of obtaining improvements in working conditions through collective action.
1: But, yeah, that's basically what I said. What
2: is <laughs> but what does that really mean? Yeah, because I mean that's the definition. But right. what I want listeners to understand. By the end of this episode is the dynamics of what's actually happening inside a union and why they matter. So let's start with a strike. What
1: do you know about what a strike is? Okay, wow. Well, this is... Come on, Brian. We're quizzing yeah. now. No yes, quizzes indeed. to Katina, just all to me, huh? That's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, a strike is the, a union or a group of people that have said that they don't want to do something <laughs> without a set expectation that they have chosen being met being met. Yeah. So is here's, that good, is that good? Yeah. No, I, I, B plus, um, <laughs> yeah,
2: no, uh, thank you Katina for that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So in a strike, the workers say basically, we're not going to lift a finger. We're not going right. to do any more work. Unless you meet these expectations. Right. Right. Which can be a variety of expectations. Yeah. Um, Could, are there
1: any more questions coming up? Maybe. We'll see. I'm going to, they are going to be a surprise. <laughs> if okay, great. You better be, stay woke, Brad.
0: I know, yeah.
2: So the reason we have unions and need unions is because businesses inherently have more bargaining power than labor. Mm-hmm. So the thing this, listener, you do not probably know what your boss makes, but he knows what you make. He knows the financials and how much you produce. Like there's a certain amount of good you create at your job, a certain amount of value you create. But you in the position of the laborer don't know what that amount even really is. The business has more complete information and they also have more bargaining power because there's more people in the labor pool that they could swap you for than you have other jobs to go to. There's more laborers than there are industries. And this is especially true in certain times and places in history where you, for instance, would have a coal town where there's one employer, the coal mine. And if you get fired from the coal mine, basically you can't work anywhere else because they hire everyone in town. They build and own the houses. Yeah, And so they had complete control. And because of that, they had more of the bargaining power. So they know how much everyone would make. They know all the financials and they could set the value of labor, the price of labor, the wages at whatever they wanted. Yeah. And people couldn't really do anything about it. So then what you had happen in history is people would strike. People would band together because they realized, I mean, there's times and places when just individual people would say, you have to pay me more or I'm not going to work. But then a business can just fire that person and replace them with the next guy. Yeah. But then employees started to realize if we all together, collectively at once, say we're not going to work unless you pay us better, then that's the bargaining power that that we have to get the concessions that we want. Right. Mm -hmm. And in modern times, another aspect of this is that corporate boards don't really have the labor of the company as someone to answer to. Like the board is beholden to the shareholders who own the company. That's who they're answering to. That's who ultimately can hire and fire them. But labor has no leverage on the corporation other than through a union. Like a union is the way that labor can actually be represented in a boardroom Hmm. and can actually have a say in how things are done. And another aspect of this is most people understand the concept of a monopoly. Brad Popquist, what's a monopoly?
1: When one organization or person owns the market or maybe just a huge portion of the said market. Yeah. And they can charge whatever they
2: want because people can't go anywhere else. Or, right. There's no alternative. Yeah. So like the EpiPen manufacturer is the only one who can yeah. make EpiPens. So they recently, I don't know the where it's at currently, but they had done like a tenfold increase in the price of EpiPens because they can't, because they have a monopoly because what else are you going to do? Right. Yeah. yeah we need it. them. Yeah. So most people are familiar with a monopoly, but, Going back to the coal mine example, there's something called a labor monopoly, which is just a different version of the same kind of idea. But it's where one company basically has monopoly type power Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because they're the ones who are doing all the hiring. And this is true of Amazon warehouses, for instance. They, in a lot of communities, are the main employer in their area. And so they have just disproportionate bargaining power that comes with that. They kind of act almost like a monopoly does, only in the labor market versus a product market. And so that can kind of distort the labor market in an area. And labor unions are a way to create balance, like push it back towards balance. Because you want an efficient market, and labor monopolies distort it, so it's not efficient. So you need something to counteract that.
1: This is like the balancing of like, capitalism, I guess one of the cons of it, I mean, in a pure capitalistic society, a monopoly is...
2: Yeah, it
0: gives
1: more power to the people who own the capital.
0: All right. Mm -hmm.
2: So yeah, unions counteract those dynamics and they work through collective action, through the employees banding together. And that's an essential component of it. Because if you have 40% of your employees threatened to strike then the business probably could get by without that 40%. Mm-hmm. But if you have 100% saying, no, we're not going not gonna to work, then the business has to talk, has to make concessions. Right. So Heather McGee, the author of The Sum of Us, describes some of this. She says, Desperate for work and easily exploited workers had power in their numbers. One worker could ask for a raise and be shown the door, behind which dozens of people were lined up to take his place. But what really made American work in the industrial era was the fact that companies didn't face individual pleas for improvement, but they faced mass work stoppages, slowdowns, armed protests, and strikes that forced employers to the bargaining table. The result was jobs with better pay, benefits, and safety practices, and upward mobility for generations of Americans to come. These victories were possible only when people recognized their common struggles and linked arms. And linking arms for those workers usually meant forming a union. So we have to acknowledge that unions early on had a violent history. Nowadays, there's laws and regulations regarding unions, and it's a fairly orderly process. But in the early days, there were times when people would be shot and killed, like these, the tension between industrialists who tended to hire police, like early policing was largely to break up strikes and brutalize striking workers and the striking workers who then retaliated against any worker who would cross the line to go and work. There was also racial violence. There was anti-immigrant violence. There's like a a fraught history because in, in those days, there wasn't the federal government structure that there is now to make it a calmer and like organized process. Right. So, there's a fraught history. There's also corruption within unions. And sometimes unions get a bad rap because there's corruption within unions. And the thing I want to point out there is there is con- corruption in any position of power. I don't think union leaders are any more corrupt than CEOs. It's just they, they get a worse rap for it because industry wants to peg them as corrupt so that unions become less popular. Right. But if you look at corporate boards and the corrupt things that they're doing, instead of dealing that they're doing, like white collar crime that they're doing... And then compare that to unions. I I think there's just inherently corruption is a problem for any position that has a lot of power and union leaders do have a lot of power. So corruption is a factor there, but also it's not inherent to what a union is. A corporation, its ultimate goal is to make money for shareholders. A union's ultimate goal is to create value for labor, for the workers. And so neither of those ultimate goals are inherently problematic, but I think If I had to pick one, I think labor unions actually are serving a better purpose because they're caring for the workers, not just for people who have a bunch of equity. Right. An example of early labor union violence was there's a strike in 1877 that embraced 100,000 workers. Wow. Pittsburgh militia fired into a crowd and killed several people. Workers retaliated by destroying 39 buildings, 104 locomotives, 1245 train cars. At the end of the strike, one to two hundred people were dead and many hundreds more were injured or imprisoned. These things erupted.
1: That's huge. I mean, even if that if that happened today, that sounds massive. Yeah,
2: yeah. So in the last two decades of the nineteenth century, so during that era, kind of late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, unions were they they kind of had this abrupt arrival on the scene in America. And during those two decades, more than 6 million workers were involved in 23,000 strikes. This was part of what shaped the modern world. And from unions, we got things like the 40-hour work week, paid overtime, vacation days, health and retirement, and safety standards, the things that we take for granted now as part of the world that we live in.
0: Yeah, well, yeah,
2: that's just regular federal
0: employer
2: law now, yeah. yeah. But back then those things were kind of unheard of. Like people used to work six days a week before unions arrived on the scene. That was like the norm and the expectation in the South. It was even criminalized for sharecroppers not to work six days a week. They could actually, as part of the black codes, they could actually get arrested for vagrancy for not working on Saturdays. But that was like such the expectation that people work six days a week. And it was because of labor unions bargaining collectively against employers that that changed and it used to be the case that people worked for 10 or 12 hours a day they didn't get paid overtime like labor used to be (laughs) kind of terrible brutal brutal people there weren't safety standards so people would die by the thousands in some industries just And massive amounts of death. If you start to look into New York City and kind of do Google and research some of the subsurface infrastructure that was built in New York City, it's just just thousands of people would
0: die. Like the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. I did that tour, and it was just amazing hearing about the workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were expendable and
2: discardable, and if they die, then you don't have to keep paying them. So there's not really an incentive for the employers to make things safe. And there was not the same kind of lawsuit scene that there is now, or that probably would have also changed it. But, but yeah, unions came under the scene and collectively bargained and then lobbied in Congress and the government for changes to the laws that have made the world the place that we just kind of take for granted now. So before emancipation, there were a lot of white poor people who were in the South. Like not all Southerners benefited from slavery. In fact, many of them did not. Many of them were poor.
1: Yeah, we've talked, we've talked about this a bunch. I feel like I know where you're, where you're headed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way that the dynamics worked were the, these, these poor whites
2: could have benefited, right. would have benefited from an end to slavery. Uh-huh. And just the irony of the fact that they didn't oppose slavery, because they were basically competing with free labor, And how low do you have to, like, what do you have to set your own wage at, your own pay rate, in order to compete with free?
1: Right. It's also the last place aversion. Yeah.
2: And they were willing to go along with it because they knew that at least we're not in the position of the black enslaved people. Right. But the people who were enslaved got no fruit of their own work. The people, the white people who didn't enslave others, They were harmed by it because they're working in a job market where basically you can't charge anything. The only people who really benefited were the people at the top. And there was actually about 200 people in the whole of the South that gained like the vast majority. I don't have the percentage here, but the vast majority of the benefit went to just this very small group. Mm but they were able to control the system. They were able to basically brainwash the poor whites into thinking that they were somehow benefiting from the system that actually was trapping them in poverty also.
0: Hmm.
2: But part of the way that they did that and part of the way that they continued to do that after slavery ended was by creating this mentality of zero sum game, trying to get them to think the only way you can benefit is if you harm others. The only way you can benefit is by seeing others pushed down But the reality is that's not actually how economics works. The reality is when other people benefit, they then take the money and the productivity and they reinvest that into the economy and everyone can rise together. But that's not the world that they thought was possible at the time. And so that's not the world they created. So then meanwhile, that's what was going on in the South with Southern whites. But there was also racism from that zero-sum game idea that was up in the North. And W.B. Du Bois wrote about this saying, nevertheless, at the same time, white labor, while it attempted no denial, but even expressed faint sympathy, saw in the fugitive slave and in the millions of slaves behind him, willing and eager to work for less than the current wage, competition for their own jobs. What they failed to comprehend was that the black man enslaved was even more formidable and fatal competitor than the black man free. Wow. So that's before slavery ended and the dynamics at that point. But then labor, uh, following the story of labor through time, like after slavery ended, and we've talked about this before, it didn't really end in the way that we often think it did. That something very, very closely resembling slavery continued in the South after emancipation. Yes. That the sharecropping system that took the place of slavery was 90% of the way, in many cases, to slavery. Somewhere around 80% of sharecroppers received no money for their work mm-hmm. because they were forced into a cycle of debt, forced by the black codes to work on the plantations that they, in many cases, had been enslaved on. And they were put into debt to those plantations in a way that they then had to just keep working for nothing, just paying off the debt, but receiving no money. So then sharecroppers often banded together and they started to form what was kind of like an early union, banding together and demanding better pay and better practices. In many cases, the response to those demands and to that collective action was violence, was brutal violence. So for example, in November 1887, thousands of black sugarcane workers banded together and went on strike in the Forche Parish, Louisiana. And armed white men descended on these black residents, killing as many as 60 people and leaving hundreds missing and wounded. And there were patterns of violence like that across the South, massacres and racial violence, racial intimidation that would be in response to that collective action that demanded better conditions. Another example is in Hernando, Mississippi in 1935, A Reverend T.A. Allen tried to start a sharecropper's union among local impoverished and exploited black laborers, and he was seized by a white mob, shot many times, and then thrown in the Coldwater River. And often that was a factor in lynch mob violence.
0: What's so crazy is that what black people hear today when we're talking about reparations or when we're talking about equity, equality, and justice is that black people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And this is all we've ever done historically, from enslavement to post-enslavement and just even coming together collectively to fight for better conditions, work conditions, better pay. And these stories are just brutal. I mean, to hear that someone is fighting for their existence and then just shot and thrown into the... And I'm sure no one was arrested. I mean, Mm -hmm. no one was brought to justice. But this is literally black people pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And this is what we were met with Mm -hmm. um, throughout the history, our history in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's easy to say that in the
1: position that we're in now to think like, yeah, just do that. But then people were doing that and were getting murdered. Right. And so...
0: Mm-hmm. Every, I would
1: second chance anything if I was going to get murdered doing it
0: Yeah, every act of resistance or solidarity or collective effort was always met with opposition And when I say opposition, I'm talking about violence
1: mm-hmm.
0: and brutality
1: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and and just to give two other examples of it In the, the same year as the one I just had read last An African-American sharecropper, this was in 1935 Joe Spinner Johnson a leader of the Alabama Sharecroppers Union, was lynched for organizing black people to demand fair wages and better working conditions. A mob of white men assisted by Johnson's landowner, by the person who he is sharecropping for, which, what a betrayal. Is that like somebody who's working for you and you're leading a mob to lynch him? They bound and beat Johnson, took him to jail in Selma, and then he was further abused there, like other prisoners talked about how they could Hear the sounds of him being abused through the night, and then he was found. His body was found in a field.
0: My God!
2: In the book *The Warmth of Other Suns*, which is a book I highly recommend, the author Isabel Wilkerson, she just found and collected the stories of three black people who had fled the South in the Great Migration. And so she found them and was interviewing them in basically in modern times and just hearing their stories. And so what she got, what she collected was kind of just a random, a random sampling of what three different stories were of people, black people who had fled up to the North fleeing racial violence and segregation in the South. And so one of those three stories of George Swanson Starling, he fled because of this dynamic like just one of the three random stories she collected, he was organizing fruit pickers during World War II and basically using collective action and saying they were going to refuse to pick fruit and it was going to rot on the trees unless the fruit packing companies agreed to pay them more. And there was one of his friends, somebody who he, just in the black community, I think it was like a gardener at a house, overheard the white people talking about plans to kill him to kill him and two of his associates. And so that's what sparked his migration up north. But this was, I mean, it was a common thing. This was like, that's a random sampling of people and it's part of one of their stories that in the South, black people who organized to demand better wages were targeted. At the same time, there was white people who were organizing labor and that was all throughout. But then some of these unions where white people band together also did, Include black people and were open to black people and were spaces that actually made incredible racial progress. They were spaces that actually created racial solidarity. Because the dynamic is, and we've mentioned this before, if you are white laborers and you strike and black people are not part of your union, then the industrialist who you're in competition with can just fire your whole crew and they can just bring in black labor to replace you. But if black people are part of the union, then the industrialist has nowhere else to turn. So it actually made unions stronger for them to be integrated. But industrialists knew this, the wealthy people in the South knew this, and so that's why they tried to sow division and racial division. Right. But before they could do that, back in the 1880s, there was a union called the Knights of Labor. It was one of the first large-scale attempts at labor organization. And they worked across color lines arguing, and here's a quote from their stuff. They say, why should working men keep anyone out of the organization who could be used by the employer as a tool to grind down wages? The Knights of Labor motto was, that is the most perfect government in which an injury to one is a concern of all. And the latter half of that phrase was their mantra. They said it over and over again in their stuff, that an injury to one is a concern of all. One way to kind of understand this in modern times, but in modern terms is anyone who's following the the stuff in Ukraine right now, NATO is almost following the same dynamics as a union. It's that idea of an attack against one is an attack against all. And so any individual European country would perhaps be threatened by and have to make concessions to Russia because of a worry that Russia would invade them. But when all the European countries band together and say, no, an attack against any one of us is going to be treated as an attack against all of us, then that makes them strong enough that it's a deterrent where Russia doesn't want to mess with any NATO country. And so that's kind of the dynamic that unions should form, that when they're working correctly, that's what they form. So Heather McGee, with black workers in the union, white workers gained by robbing the bosses of a population they might exploit to undercut wages or break strikes. At the same time, black workers gained working for and benefiting from whatever gains the union won. So they helped everyone. The Knights of Labor grew to 700,000 people in the 1880s. In the South, nearly half of the union members were black, but white employers undercut the unity of the Knights by deliberately sowing racial hostility. The Knights of Labor only lasted a decade and fell apart and gave way to Jim Crow and the American Federation of Labor which became the dominant union and was segregated. So after World War I, jumping forward, the business community closed ranks, and they honed their anti-union tactics. When the American Federation of Labor struck U.S. Steel in the fall of 1919 and shut down half the steel mills in the country, management used every dirty tactic available to them, they smeared the union leaders in the press by calling them Reds and Bolsheviks, basically calling them communists. They derided the striking workers because they were immigrants. They encouraged local and state militia to intimidate and harass the strikers. They brought in 30,000 to 40,000 African-Americans and Mexican-Americans as strike to try to bypass the striking workers. They taunted and locked out strikers, taunted them for losing their good white jobs and this would be the big business playbook for decades to come. They, and it, it was like a feedback loop, because really what the unions needed was racial solidarity to stand together in order to bargain for better conditions. But instead, because they became segregated, black people were bought into break strikes, and then the industrialists taunted them and basically used that to sow animosity towards the black workers when that was exactly the opposite of what the white workers really needed. What they needed was solidarity, but they just became embittered towards the black workers. And then it boiled over into racial violence. Du Bois spoke of the failure of solidarity to win shared gains and said, It failed to work because the theory of race was supplemented by a carefully planned and slowly evolved method, which drove such a wedge between the white and black workers, that there probably are not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical interests, who hate and fear each other so deeply and persistently, and who are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interest. It must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they received a low wage, were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks, and the best schools. The police were drawn from their ranks, and the courts, depending on their votes, treated them with such leniency as to encourage lawlessness. Their votes selected the public officials, and while this had small effect upon the economic situation, it had great effect upon their personal treatment and the deference shown them. White schoolhouses were the best in the community, and conspicuously placed, and they cost anywhere from twice to ten times as much per capita as the colored schools. The newspapers specialized on news that flattered the poor whites and almost utterly ignored the Negro, except in crime and ridicule. It's from Black Reconstruction. So the industrials basically crafted this society where they drove this wedge, gave these kind of special concessions to white people in exchange, the racial division, um, and that's what Jim Crow was. And it trampled on lives and it hurt everyone other than the rich people who were exploiting the system. So, then, like I hinted, it, it boiled over into racial violence. And one instance of this was in St. Louis. In St. Louis in 1916, 2,500 white employees in the meatpacking industry near East St. Louis went on strike trying to get higher wages. And so the companies imported black workers to break the strike and to replace them. And ultimately, the workers did win a wage increase, but 800 of the black workers were retained and the same number of white workers were fired. So there's just this racial animosity. And then the next spring, kind of building on that tension, the next spring, the mostly white workers of the Aluminum Ore Company in East St. Louis, same city, voted to strike. The company recruited hundreds of black workers to replace them, and at a labor meeting, the white workers circulated rumors of black men fraternizing with white women. And so 3,000 white union members formed a mob, and attacked black residents of East St. Louis at random on the streets. They began shooting residents of the community and two plainclothes police officers were killed in some crossfire. And then when news of that got out, roving white mobs rampaged through the black community, burning homes and businesses, assaulting men, women, and children. As many as 200 black working people died and 6,000 were left homeless. Wow. And then similar riots happened In Atlanta, in Wilmington, and many other places, there were these riots built on this tension that had been created. But the white community was not completely naive to what was happening and the way that they were being played off of the black community. And so there was a resurgent effort to create racial unity and an interracial labor union that really became effective in around 1935. That's when the AFL, American Federation of Labor, the, the segregated union, splintered. And coming out of that was the Congress of Industrialized Organizations, the CIO. And the CIO, like the Knights of Labor before them, was an integrated union. And that opened up a new era of progress and labor empowerment.
0: What's sad is that even in this, black people were still being commodified. Because we can't be that naive to think that race relations improved, even though Black people were allowed to join these unions. It was a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And so yet another way that Black people are propped and commodified. So it's, a bit, it's bittersweet. So mm-hmm. there, there's integration for the sake of solidarity for better work conditions and better pay that black people probably still wouldn't receive
1: mm-hmm.
0: as good pay, as good of pay as the white workers. Yeah. Because because those wage disparities continue and continue to this day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but Dubois, he said probably the greatest and most effective effort toward interracial understanding among the working masses has come about through the trade unions. As a result of the organization of the CIO in 1935, numbers of men like those in the steel and automotive industries have been thrown together. I like that, thrown together. Fellow workers striving for the same objects. There has been on this account astonishing spread of racial tolerance and understanding. Probably no movement in the last 30 years has been so successful in softening Race prejudice among the masses, and so I, I and I and I get that and I understand that, but I do know that it came, it still came at a high cost mm-hmm. to to black bodies. Yeah,
2: and, and to your point, it's it wasn't real love, right? Like love is when you do something that's good for someone, even when it costs you something. This was like a love of convenience. It's like it was to the benefit of white people to have solidarity, so they had the solidarity, but. They didn't have it when it was going to cost them something.
0: And black people, you know, for African Americans, yes, there was representation and there was a reckoning in a sense of black people taking up these spaces and white people having to engage with them in a different way. And my generation for sure stands on the shoulders of those who worked during the Industrial Revolution And had to contend with sharecropping and forced labor and even joining forces with enemies, basically, in order to just work and put food on the table. I I can't imagine just all of the intersections Mm. and how they landed on African-American people and how you had to basically pick your poison in in a sense. Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Heather McGee chimes in on the on the CIO talking about. It. She says, it was in those years that unions reached a high watermark, with about one in three American workers being a member of the union. Unions had the bargaining power to set wages across major industries. The 40-hour work week, overtime pay, healthcare benefits, retirement benefits were all popularized through collective bargaining in the 1930s and 1940s. The power to win these benefits came about through racial solidarity. So there was I mean it wasn't it wasn't necessarily even driven by love, but even as kind of tainted as it was, that solidarity made real change that has made America better. Yeah. Made us better and stronger. And and I think that some real love did come about through that. Because once these people these groups that were pitted against one another began to cooperate, I mean Du Bois' quote basically says that he saw that it was, like from his perspective as he was writing, that it was a movement towards actual racial understanding. Because, I mean, we talked about this before, proximity is not enough to create racial understanding and racial... It's not enough to end racism and racial stereotypes, but it is a first step that's necessary. Yeah, And so collective action and the collaboration in labor was a first step that started to create progress. And so that kind of, the the civil rights movement kind of came about in that context where a third of workers in America are now working in in places where there's solidarity uh, to some degree through the unions.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support us for $5 a month at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we're going to continue the discussion in labor unions with part two. We'll leave you with this quote from Booker T. Washington. You can't hold a man down without staying down with him.